0: A Dialogue. This is a podcast where we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My name is Kathy G. Johnson.
1: And I'm E. Jackson.
0: I am an educator, a scholar, and cartoonist.
1: And I'm a cartoonist scholar.
0: Today, um, on Drawing A Dialogue, we are going to be revisiting The gaze, which is what we talked about last episode, episode 5. Why did we want to revisit The gaze? E?
1: Right. Um... We wanted to come back to it because within the scope of drawing a dialogue, um, we have certain, like, limitations just due to the format. It's, you know, it's not, like, the sort of thing we can really do a deep dive in, like, a single episode on. And Gaze is something that has, like, a very complex history um, and a lot of, like conflicting ideas and criticisms and, like, uh, just different, like, theories, and I personally wanted to do justice by that and kind of offer an opportunity to complicate, uh, our understanding of the gaze as we presented last episode.
0: Yeah, so even though, as we did last episode, it's a relatively recent, it's like a recent theory. Yeah. But what's happened is that popular media just amped up and is, like, just, like, running full throttle, basically. Yeah. And so, like E just said, it's, it's, it's like, extremely complicated because it gets invoked a lot with trying to understand uh, film studies and then also as we talk about how film studies adapt to cultural studies. So we're going to dig in um, and we're just going to, as E said, complicate... When we talk about the gays, um there's a lot of power dynamics um there's a lot of assumptions mm-hmm. so, like almost every scholar that I read for this episode, they are working from their own assumptions, their own biases um I say biases it's not necessarily a negative word. it's just sort of the assumptions that people are coming from. Some people are coming from a heterosexual assumption. Um, Some people are coming from a cisgender assumption, uh, a a racial, a white assumption, Mm -hmm. and then it just colors the way that people talk about the gays, but then everyone still uses this word,
1: gays. Right.
0: So that's our goal for this episode.
1: Yeah, and so we're gonna be approaching this a little bit differently instead of our usual um, our usual segments. We wanted to sort of approach this more as like a back and forth conversation because again, it's uh, like. When we're complicating something, um, there's not really a conclusion that I necessarily want to draw. Like I'm not necessarily presenting an argument so much as trying to like offer different uh, analyses and critiques. Um,
0: mm-hmm. And that's what we do here in drawing a dialogue. Yeah. we aren't. We're trying to keep our own theories and biases out. And we're just trying to present other people's writings.
1: Yeah, yeah. But since this one's going to be a little bit more conversational, um, I do want to note that we're recording in the same
0: room. We are! This
1: week, which is interesting. A drawing
0: a dialogue first.
1: Uh, But I do apologize in advance if there's any wonky audio, just because of that. Okay, so do you want to jump right in?
0: I think we should define what the gaze is again on what we talked about episode five.
1: Okay. Uh, So in episode five... I sort of broke down uh, three important concepts regarding the gaze, uh, which were Lacone's theory of the gaze, of the gaze as object petit-ah. His theory uh, was that visual information is never neutral, but constructed by both the subject who is a receiver and the object or visual test that is, in a sense, transmitting. Uh, he was building on theories of Freud about like identity of self um, and how we relate to others based on our own egos, essentially. I also talked about Laura Mulvey's, uh, who Laura Mulvey is the feminist uh, scholar who coined the term male gaze in 1975 in her essay Visual Pleasures and Narrative Cinema. Um, she used the Freudian and Laconian concepts of phallocentrism and uh, scopophilia. Um, and her argument was that women then stand in patriarchal culture as a signifier for the male other, so essentially the camera assumes a default male viewer, and women uh, are the ones receiving this view.
0: When you say women are receiving this view, they are the objects that are being gazed upon. Yes. Yeah, they're not, like, looking at the view. Right. They yeah. are the, They are being yeah. viewed.
1: Yeah, it's an okay. it's a active um, subject, passive object, and women are the
0: object. Cool, perfect. Thank you.
1: Yes. So I also broke down Foucault's idea uh, very briefly about panopticism, which is this idea that uh, there's a conscious and like permanent visibility created by the state that we internalize and thus like impact each other with. So like the panoptic gaze is like a
0: um. Um. It's based on the panopticon in which we may be, it's like a monitoring kind of thing. So you yeah. either are being, you're always in the state of being watched. And so you are self-aware.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was writing off of a book from 1791 that was about, uh, Jerry Bentham's panopticon or the inspection house, which was presented as a prison design, but could have been applied to schools, workshops, society as a whole. And it, is employed
0: in city design urban design Mm -hmm. um uh it is employed in uh contemporary prisons uh it's police state Like, people feel, I mean, uh, technology, people feel like they're always being monitored. I mean, it's super, very current.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and the way he put it is, um, the panopticon's function is to induce in the inmate a state of conscious and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power, in short, that the inmate, well, he was talking about prisoners, but in short, that you'd be caught up in a power situation of which you yourself are the bearer. Um, so we all kind of carry a panoptic gaze within us, and that has been applied uh especially in like feminist academics and like transgender studies and all these things,
0: yeah, awareness that you are always being monitored, and mm-hmm. especially in current culture uh we are monitoring each other, right, which uh, does come up a lot in like transgender conversations yeah, uh that is ease sort of summarizing e's definition of the gaze, and so we are hopefully going to just complicate it so much. Um, So the way I wanted to start out the conversation was a 2007 uh, interview with Laura Mulvey titled Gender, Gays, and Technology in Film Culture. And it was an interview conducted by Roberta Sestelli. The original... So Laura Mulvey, again, is the person who coined... The male gaze. So that is that women are other in film uh, rather than the subject. Mm-hmm. So this interview with her, 2007, really 10 years ago, the original article was written in 1975. I just thought this was a fantastic way to sort of frame our conversation today. Yeah. Um, because people love to still uh, pull out male gaze. The, f- the term male gaze and use it as if we all know what we're talking about. And as if the original term wasn't coined in a specific context, but yeah. Mulvey obviously was writing a specific context because everything yeah. has a context. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so part of her, the criticisms that her original piece um, have received is that it's a rather heterosexual so the context for in which she's writing. So she had three um influences to write this theory. One was the popularity of American cinema studies in England. So she's English. Mm-hmm. And at this time, American studies were very popular in universities and in academics and part of it as she says it was it was a way to escape class structures in England. Right. Another influence, 1975, was feminism. Right. And another influence was Freudianism. Because as we talked about before, all these things are happening at the same time.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, she was a second wave feminist.
0: Yeah. Second wave, but it's women's liberation. Women's lib. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. What she says in this interview is that no one was talking about theory in reference to women's lib.
1: Right. Right.
0: So she was the first person, and this is these are her words, right? So she believes that it's a fresh new look in order to pull from Lacan and pull from Freud and start to bring theory into feminism. Mm-hmm. So I think it's super important to say that she just started to just be like, I was reading Lacan, I was reading Freud, and this is just where I what I decided to write about. Right. And also another thing that is like key to her. So the context of this piece is that she's talking about a very specific cinema, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? So it's easy to want to use male gaze now, but what she's talking about is, so I'm just going to read from her words. I wonder what we can do with the notion of male gaze now, that popular or otherwise visual texts are constructed in many different ways, and represented gender identities are probably much more f- open, fluid, and reflexive, certainly as a result of feminist and gay lesbian movements. So this is the interviewer. Yeah. Um, the interviewer is saying popular cinema and popular media has changed because of feminist, gay, and lesbian movements. Mm-hmm. So how can we sensitize our concepts to the evident dialectic between feminist thought and commercial culture? So what she's saying, asking Mulvey, is how can we update the male gaze away from cisgender biases, heterosexual biases, and affect media today? Right. So what Mulvey says is that the question of gaze now has shifted. Right. So it says, in a sense, the question of the gaze has become more attached to the dynamic of sexuality, whereas in my argument from 1975 about Hollywood, it was much more attached to narrative, to the textual structure of the cinema, and so on. It's important to remember that the particular cinema I was interested in was a very censored cinema, and a subject to censorship right through into the mid-50s. So what I was particularly interested in was the way that the cinema itself had to absorb the displacement of sexuality into these highly structured narratives and highly structured star personas, in which sexuality was absorbed into image, and then into exchange of looks, and then into narrative. And of course, there were always ways some cinemas were less repressed about sexuality, in which... Relations between the genders had always been more complex. Mm -hmm. So what she's saying, this is very interesting, right? She is absolutely not talking about media with overt sexuality in her original article about the male gaze. Right. But now, contemporarily, our media has so much more overt sexuality in it. So when we talk about, when we use the male gaze... Phrase is just utterly different than the original context,
1: yeah, the theory has like also just been added to over time by like other scholars, yeah, yeah,
0: but I think it's important to keep in mind what she's referring to when we start to read criticisms of hers,
1: yeah also i I like that interview, and I like the the um I think it's interesting to have that context because I think that is something that doesn't get to discuss very often and in the context of that essay Mulvey herself the she it's it's polemic right so she's painting with like very very broad strokes um and it's easy to understand why it might like there might have been assumptions at the time of it applying like more broadly because she never cle- she never says in the essay that she's only talking about this specific type of cinema
0: but it was written in 1975
1: yeah but there are other cinemas by that point too mhm um but I wanted to say that the one thing I think that interview still is, uh, shows like a gap, I guess, as we're talking about like, people's uh, biases and assumptions, is that Mulvey still does not address racial disparities in gays in that interview. Um, like They talk about gender and they talk about lesbian and gay studies, um, but they don't address black-specific criticism of the gays either. Mm-hmm. Which isn't like it, it, you know I'm not saying that as like a, a criticism of itself I just want to like mm-hmm. I want to use that to segue into um what bell hooks has written about gaze and specifically Mulvey's idea of the male gaze um this is from the oppositional gaze uh, which is a chapter in black looks race and representation she writes specifically. Uh, on mainstream feminist film criticism, it does not even consider the possibility that women can construct an oppositional gaze via an understanding and awareness of the politics of race and racism. Feminist film theory root in an ahistorical psychoanalytical framework that privileges sexual difference, actively suppresses recognition of race. So um, oppositional gaze theory, as Bell Hooks puts forward, is that uh, Black Spectator's Um, when they first had the opportunity to look at film and television, they did so fully aware that mass media was a system of knowledge and power reproducing and maintaining white supremacy. It was the oppositional black gaze that responded to these looking relations by developing independent black cinema. So she's saying that black spectators are aware of a different racial relationship. And like, um, for instance, the application of say male gaze to a gaze between a black man and a white woman mm-hmm. is going to be very different because there is a historical precedent of the way uh, white women have been able to use the racial imbalance there to reduce black men to hypersexual beings. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not the same. It cannot be the same male gaze as what Mulvey's talking about, which is from a white cis heteronormative uh, point of view. So oppositional gaze in regards to black female spectators, she says um, Looking at film with an oppositional gaze, black women were able to critically assess the cinema's construction of white womanhood as an object of phallocentric gaze and choose not to identify with either the victim or the perpetrator. Black female spectators who refused to identify with white womanhood, who would not take on the phallocentric gaze of desire and possession, create a critical space where the binary opposition Mulvey posits of woman as image, man as bearer of the look, was continually deconstructed. So she's suggesting that uh, black female spectators have created their own gaze uh, that they approach cinema with, and this is like a strategy that enables uh, black women to deal with the way they are represented in film.
0: So what you're saying is that the viewer is viewing images
1: differently. So Mulvey kind of posits that there's not a way to opt out of the male gaze, right? That, like, women look at themselves under this male gaze as well, and Mm -hmm. there's no possibility for there to be a relationship other than this active passive, in the specific cinema she's talking about, to be clear. Yeah. Um... Bell Hooks, who is talking more generally, I'm not sure if she's, um, I don't want to, like, attach to her whether she's also speaking to Mulvey-specific films or not, is saying that, unlike what Mulvey and other mainstream feminists posit using Laconian ideals of psychoanalysis, um, she returns to Foucault, which... Foucault writes that um, domination is in terms of relations of power and that within those relations of power, there is necessarily the possibility of resistance. So she uses Foucault to deconstruct this idea that there cannot be a challenge to this active passive gaze and that black people and specifically black women have developed a strategy to resist by refusing to submit as viewers to this white, phallic-centric, active-passive-gaze relationship.
0: Okay. I guess what I'm wondering is what the strategy is.
1: So she, in terms of the strategy, she... which For this essay, she spoke to black women about their viewership um, uh, and what they did, and she describes their reactions. Let me see if I can find a...
0: So I think what's interesting is that, so like, Malveh... Well, you're looking for this.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, well, Mulvey, in this interview, she's also talking about, so say, she says, going back to feminist politics, or even the early women's movement, mm-hmm. there are always a double tendency. In the first instance, the women's movement made a political point that women were exploited through the body and through images of the female body. And it's true, you're right white women is what she's talking about, but there is still, like, a level of exploitation.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, thus, if the female body was a site of oppression, questions of representation could not be ignored. So it was impossible to conceive of liberating the female body without analyzing oppressive representations of the female body, which has led quickly into the questions of semiotics. So I wanted to bring this in because representation, I mean, this is a comic book podcast. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, So, like, representation is, like, a very hot topic right now. Yeah. Uh, Mulvey goes on, Because the body in everyday life is very different from the body circulated in images. Because the female image, for instance, in advertising and in movies, didn't necessarily refer to actual women, the women of everyday life. Right. but to an image that could be put into circulation as part of commodity culture, and as part of the general commodification of society. But women in everyday life, the woman as consumer and the woman as consumed had to live these contradictions within the unconscious of the patriarchal capitalism. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like, so she's talking about the mass-produced images of women, and I feel like what you're talking about is uh, Bell Hook's She's interviewing black women for their strategies and how to deal with these commodifications of their own bodies.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, She even goes on to say, like, um, talking with black female spectators, looking at written discussions either in fiction or academic essays about uh, black women. I know the connection made between the realm of representation and mass media and the capacity of black women to construct ourselves as subjects in daily life. This extent to which black women feel devalued, objectified, dehumanized in this society determines the scope and texture of their looking relations. Those black women whose identities were constructed in resistance by practices that opposed the dominant order were more inclined to develop an oppositional gaze. Now there's growing interest in films produced by black women and those films become more accessible to viewers. It is possible to talk about black female spectatorship in relationship to that work. So she's saying here that um, these, yeah, she's saying pretty straightforwardly that these image, like how black people, how black women are represented, how black people are represented in film creates a sense of dehumanization in their everyday lives. Uh, mm. because they're not seeing themselves represented as they actually are, which is something that Mulvey, I think, is also talking about in terms of commodification. It's just that Mulvey's argument is, um...
0: Is that these, these fictional images are just, like, not everyday people. Yeah. This segues nicely into an article titled Popular Cinema and Lesbian Interpretive Strategies. This is an article by... Uh,
1: This article is by uh, Cheryl Dobson and Kevin Young. Dobson. Cheryl Dobson.
0: Yeah, and um, so while presenting this article, this article is about the active lesbian viewing rule and reading interpretation strategies that lesbians take while viewing popular cinema. Um, So like with the Bell Hooks article, um, when she's referring to the difference between popular cinema and independent cinema, what this piece is talking about is finding representation and reading interpretation as deemed as acts of production in themselves. Mm-hmm. um so here's a quote previously research examining the relationship between lesbians and gay men and the media has tended to focus on issues of invisibility and lack of accurate or positive representation rather than on the one on the exploration of an active lesbian audience so this article is from 2000 but i feel like this is still um a large part of the conversation right invisibility mm-hmm. and lack of accurate and positive representation. Yeah. Such approaches, we argue, do not represent a complete picture of this relationship in that lesbians would not continue to consume mainstream film and other aspects of popular culture unless they contained meaning.
1: Which is interesting, because uh, Hooks talks about in her article, uh, black women who just don't watch cinema as part of their oppositional strategy, because there's no representation. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then, so this one uh, is referring to, oh, I, I should mention that this article does say that they're, they're pulling from, they're interviewed lesbians, Um, but they were all young, white, and educated. Mm-hmm. So it's like sort of a very specific demographic.
1: And that was because it was a voluntary call for uh, yeah. participants.
0: yeah. So part of what this Lesbian Interpretive Strategies is pulling from is the literary criticism theory known as reader response theory Mm -hmm. um, with adaptations to cultural studies. And it argues that a reader's subjective Response is necessarily based on his or her social location, history, identity, and subjective interests. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting because reader response theory is something that comes up a lot in comics culture. Yeah. And, you know, queer culture and stuff. But being able to see, unlike slash fiction... Yes. Which we can, we'll possibly talk about, um, boys love comics and manga and doujinshi and slash fiction, um, later on in this episode, and probably in future episodes of drawing and dialogue. Oh yeah, definitely. So I think it's interesting to talk about re- uh, reader response theory, um, because I think it's something that, uh, cartoonists and comic books do a lot of.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So basically, it's contextualizing viewers' responses. Okay. Um, so for the lesbian interpretive strategies, part of it was, uh, the prince, um, this is a quote, a principal theme that emerges from the extant literature has to do with the kind of on-screen woman, uh, women that lesbians identify with or desire. This is interesting to me. Right. When I started reading lesbian interpretive strategies for cinema, I was thinking, so you, when you think of the gaze, yeah, you think of the object of your gaze is right. in the fiction. But with this lesbian, it just sort of puts it right together with on-screen women that lesbians identify with or desire. Right. It, it just gets complicated because it's, it's not only the object of the gaze, but it's also the object of identification.
1: Which is something that Mulvey doesn't address. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And now, I'm not sure if I am... This isn't what I was looking for from this article. Okay. Because I don't think, I know that that's something that lesbians can confront, mm-hmm. is, like, identifying with the object, like, identifying with the object of their desire, personally, but also sexually. Right. But I just don't know if that is a conversation about the gaze. Okay. D- this, this feels like when the gaze starts to break down. Okay. Because uh, is, it, is, it, is it an objectifying gaze if you're identifying with what you're looking at? I don't think it is. That's, that's completely goes, that counters the definition of what the gaze is.
1: Yeah, that actually, um, that reminds me of something that E. Ann Kaplan brings up in, um, looking for the other feminism film and the Imperial Gaze. Uh, E. Ann Kaplan is a scholar who put forth the idea of, uh, the Imperial Gaze as another critique of the, like, inherent whiteness of feminist film theory. The Imperial Gaze is the relationship between, a white, uh, gazer and a non-white subject, um, but she, in that book, actually, um, takes the time to differentiate between the word look and the word gaze, and that look allows for a relationship between the subject and the looker. Whereas gaze is not a relationship or a process, but a one-way action from an active subject to a passive object. Mulvey uses the words gaze and look interchangeably in her essay, which is why I think Kaplan sought to differentiate those, because it allows for mm. that, what bell hooks was talking about, that, like, that reciprocal relationship of power. Um, and I think that's sort of what th- that suggests, is that when lesbians are identifying with a female character, that's looking. Not yeah a gaze that's looking yeah yeah
0: yeah but then it gets complicated cuz if you are sexually attracted to what you are viewing is that inherently the gaze i'm asking you e as yeah Kathy. no
1: i'm thinking <laughs> about
0: it um i don't think it is
1: no I, I guess it de- i guess it depends if it's reciprocal or not if it can have like a, a relationship Wh-
0: which not. it can't be if it's media so to be fair this article i don't think that she the authors employ the word gaze
1: no, I don't think so either.
0: No, yeah. So we're pulling... And this is part of what this episode is about, is just trying to bring in different articles and complicate what the gaze is defined as mm-hmm. and how the gaze is understood in comic books, in the world of comics. Yeah. Which I feel needs to be complicated.
1: Yeah, because it, it's also not just from a um, media studies point of view, it's also... There are transgender comic artists. There are black comic artists. There are, like, you know what I mean? Like, the people who are making these works are also dealing within this framework. Yeah. So it's, like, it goes beyond just, like, the on-page dissection.
0: Mmm. So, like, so I just wanted to talk about the kind of women that lesbians who were interviewed for this article um, identified with, which are... um, The strong female characters, which is totally another thing that comes up in comics all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, strong female characters are the women that lesbians identify with in film. Uh, So, these are women who are self-reliant, resilient, they have the appeal of the outlaw or the bad girl, like a defiant heroine. Mm -hmm. Any woman who takes an autonomous role in the action or who drives events runs the risk of falling into the above categories. So, to quote... Being bad is unavoidable in transgressing the feminine constraints of the social order. It has been suggested that lesbians identify with or desire these kinds of heterosexual female characters in st- mainstream film because of the r- relative lack of lesbian film heroines with whom to identify and because the only lesbians found in mainstream film tend to be portrayed stereotypically. Films depicting female bonding, friendships, or associations Are also considered prime subjects for female for lesbian identification. Mm -hmm. So characters who oppose traditional notions of femininity are ripe for lesbian interpretation, Mm -hmm. as well as female friendships. Right. So another quote. The most obvious reason that lesbians would like these kinds of women in film is that simply in being a lesbian, the respondents are resisting the conventional female role, and so gender boundary crossing in other forms is something they can relate to. As Stein writes, lesbian culture is founded upon resistance to gender and sexual norms. Strong, independent women who make their own decisions and do what they want to do. Right. So this, I think, is really interesting. So... Lesbian interpretive strategies in this article are basically viewing women who are opposing traditional notions of femininity, right? And which is generally basically just being an autonomous woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. of like what Mulvey is saying,
1: that in like this repressed film, the repressed cinema, women were relegated to like housewife or like, yeah, these very like demure, sexually repressed roles.
0: Yeah, so you get like these sort of classic, and they mention a few, but the one that obviously stands out, which I think a lot of people will know, is Sigourney Weaver's character in Aliens. Yep, which is like a very common lesbians are into her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think what. <laughs> Yeah. Comes she comes up a lot. Yeah. And I think so basically I'm just saying I think it's super interesting that they found that basically women who are who break these gender norms of film. And it's just really I feel like what is important to recognize is that they are this is breaking gender norms within fiction. Yes. Not real life. Yeah. Because I feel like I mean, I can't ascribe to what this, what the authors of this article were, where they were coming from, Mm -hmm. but I feel like, at least for Mulvey and for, like, reading film, it's not talking about actual everyday people in real life.
1: Yeah, because these are fictional characters that have been constructed by people with biases. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And a certain point of view and a certain gaze. Mm -hmm. And so, um... Yeah. So this article is like talking about how to, and we talked about this last episode too, and how to take ownership of your gaze and therefore take ownership of what you are viewing.
1: Right. Yeah. So I want to just very briefly dovetail uh, into um, an essay by ABB uh, called um, The Story is a Spell, The Story is a Curse. This is from um, 2015, and Avi is just discussing the difference between... So when a story is being written by someone, there's biases. So there's a difference between, for example, a story about a gender variant character written by someone who has that lived experience, and someone who is projecting their idea and their own personal goals, and how... We relate to those stories matters, but it is also impacted by how, like, who's writing it. So, like, the lesbian cinema strategies are talking about, like, the those characters are not being written by lesbians, but they're able to project on or like find subtext that enables them to identify with those characters. But Av writes stories are the boundaries of possibility, which means that they can also be the rules of reality or the perceived rules, which are as strong as the laws of physics. If you can't imagine any other possibility. Who gets to tell the story, whose stories are celebrated, whose are the most true? Stories can lift up the powerful and restrain the oppressed. As insidious as the story that denies our existence is the story that allows us conditional existence. Here are the terms of womanhood. Here for you are different, stricter terms of womanhood, and harsher penalties for breaking them. Here are the terms our narratives have taught the rest of the world to expect from you what is allowed, entitled, and permitted to take from you, and so on. Um, so what she's saying is that, so transformative, um, analysis can only go so far,
0: in terms of... Uh, so, like, the, like, the reader response theory yeah. that I was just talking you about. You
1: can, yeah, you can reinterpret something and claim it in that way, and that's, like, a very important strategy for gays, but there is still a limit to that in that, um, these narratives set boundaries and reinforce ideas of relational power, regardless of your own personal interpretations. <laughs> What
0: is she specifically talking about?
1: She, so that that essay was in reference to um, two specific characters uh, in a couple of like very popular video games, uh, Naoto uh, in Persona 4 and Chihiro in Danganronpa, which are characters that have narratives about being gender variant, but the way the narratives are presented in the fiction are not authentic narratives of being transgender, but are very like clearly representative of the author's own interpretation, like author's own biases of misogyny and specifically trans misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um. So even though those are like very popular characters that trans people identify with, and that's like powerful and important, it does not negate the fact that these stories are ultimately harmful. Okay. Because they reinforce these boundaries.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, E just used this word, transmisogyny, but that was, this word was invented by Julia Serena, the author and scholar, and I feel like it is important she has a transmisogyny primer that she wrote for the reasons that why we talk about, there's transphobia, but there's also transmisogyny, which is a very specific, and she invented this word, so I thought it would be good for us to share the definition from the inventor of this word. Yes. So the words, these are her words. The words transgender and gender variant are typically used as a catch-all terms to denote all people who defy cultural ideals, expectations, assumptions, and norms regarding gender. While all people who fall under the transgender umbrella potentially face social stigma from transgressing gender norms, those on the male-to-female or trans-female-feminine spectrum generally receive the overwhelming majority of societal fascination, consternation, and demonization. In contrast, those on the female-to-male or trans-male-masculine spectrum have until very recently remained largely invisible and under-theorized. This disparity in attention suggests that individuals on the trans-female-feminine spectrum are culturally marked not for failing to conform to gender norms per se, but because of the specific direction of their gender transgression, that is, because of their feminine gender expression and/or their female gender identities. Thus, the marginalization of trans female slash feminine spectrum people is not merely a result of transphobia, but it is better described as trans misogyny. Mm-hmm. Trans misogyny is steeped in the assumption that femaleness and femininity are inferior to and exist primarily for the benefit of maleness and and masculinity. So, I wanted to bring this in because as we start to talk about the male gaze and therefore women's bodies Mm -hmm. in film and cinema, I also want to be able to start to talk about trans women in film. Right. And how there is a difference between transphobia and transmisogyny in that this is like a huge aspect of the
1: it's a very specific type of gaze yeah it's it's not just uh like on trans women it's not just a male gaze on trans women it's like a very specific um type of highly regulating uh the, the specific bodies of trans feminine people
0: so I wanted to start to move into this article titled The Look Interrupted, How Cinema Looks at Trans Women's Bodies. It's by E. Jessica Gruthis. And this article didn't have a date that I could find, but its oldest comment is from 2015. Um, so that's sort of where I'm dating it. It might be before 2015, but I think it's around around there. So this article sort of talks about the way that cisgender filmmakers, producers, cameramen, authors of the film gaze upon trans women's bodies. Mm-hmm. So uh, what lies at the core of this gaze that impo- is imposed on trans women is, the- is non-consent. Right. To quote the author, um, my aim here is to begin an exploration of the ways in which film through its visual language marginalize the transgender population by engaging in and thus perpetuating certain processes of misgendering othering, and cis-sexist lines of thought. Mm-hmm. So part of this thing that she talks about is how there are shots that isolate parts of characters' bodies mm-hmm. and how this creates an artifice of persona and sort of just by the cutting of shots invokes the cis idea that um, she is assembled Mm -hmm. And sort of this does sort of fall into the way that Mulvey talks about how women's bodies are cut by just the camera, by the camera shot. It's not the full body of the figure, but it's just like these isolated shots. Mm -hmm. So that is also true in this article for uh, trans women. So part of what Gruthis is referencing as the issue is that filmmakers are trained to show, not tell. To quote... The problem is that turning trans women's bodies, specifically a single part of their bodies, into a vehicle for information is a form of dehumanization. Mm -hmm. She goes on to talk about different uh, trans women characters throughout the years in cinema and the way that they are shot and written about. Um, but uh, there was a sort of a specific part that I wanted to talk about because it, it sort of segues neatly into something that happened in comics recently. Yes. And that is the quote unquote trans killer trope. Um, she talks about, uh, Sleepaway Camp, um, which is a horror film with a trans woman at the center of the film, or trans girl, she's young. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to shout out, if you're into horror films, uh, Imogen Binney talks about all the sleepaway camps, and they're super awesome, so you should go listen to her podcast, which is called Imogen Watches Classic Films. It's very good. <laughs> um, but another another character that falls into this trans killer trope is Buffalo Bill for in Silence of the Lambs. And I'm now going to quote um, the author, Gruthis, in this long paragraph here. Buffalo Bill is probably the most famous example of the quote-unquote trans killer trope. A serial killer who kidnaps women to make a woman's suit from their skin, Bill exemplifies some of the culture's deepest and most nonsensical fears about the trans feminine. Mm-hmm. In our most famous view of Bill, he makes himself up in close-ups reminiscent of the Transamerica opening, which... Um, the author talks about it previously in the Transamerica opening um, in re- reference to the shots of isolating portions of someone's body and breaking them up. Right. Before filming himself dancing. This scene is cross-cut with a scene of his captive attempting to escape from the pit in his basement. In case the connection wasn't already clear, the film draws a line visually between trans femininity unleashed and quote-unquote real womanhood held captive. The film suggests that the two cannot coexist in harmony, and it is a zero-sum game. The scene shows us nothing we don't already know, but it shows us something we'd only previously been told, bringing veiled references to Buffalo Bill's transsexuality into the frame. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to bring up this trans-killer trope, I just want to be clear here, this is... Transmisogynist. This is bad representation. Yes. Yeah. Is... <laughs> yes. There's nothing about this that is um that is endorsable. Right. But in 2014, an article written by May Rude is titled "How Batgirl Number 37 Undid a Year and a Half of Positive Trans Representation on a, in a Single Page." No, E. Do you remember this? Yeah. Um. So,
1: I, this was during the um, Stuart Fletcher tar run of Batgirl. Uh. Back during twenty fourteen. Um. They did an issue featuring a new villain, who uh his name whose name was uh Dagger Type. Well, the, the whole plot is that there's like a fake Batgirl running around town, basically. And during her battle with the fake Batgirl, um, she pulls off the fake Batgirl's mask. And, uh, quoting from the article, In what ends up being a fairly disturbing scene, Batgirl sees that the poster is, in fact, Dagger-type himself. Batgirl freezes in her draw drops as she yells, Dagger-type! But Yora clearly about to say a man before she has to dodge a bullet from Dagger's gun. Now, at this moment, Batgirl has no way of knowing Daggertype's gender. She's seen one picture of him in an artist bio once, and then she's seen him dressed up as Batgirl multiple times. So she's seen Daggertype presenting as a woman way more than presenting as a man. Why does she assume he's not trans? If you pull the wig off someone you thought was a woman, it is 100% trans misogynistic to yell in shocked horror that they are a man. If Barbara didn't know any trans people, or have shown a history of being a great trans ally, this behavior might make sense, although it would still be offensive. However, that's the exact opposite of what the case is. Um, there, what May is referring to here is that there is another character in the Batgirl series, uh, Barbara's roommate, Alicia Yo, who is uh, canonically a trans woman.
0: Yeah, and then um, I think it sort of ended with. There's an update on this article, and I believe it ends with basically they chose to edit the dialogue. So, this came out in the issue, and I've looked at the actual graphic novel collecting this issue, and they chose to edit the dialogue from dagger type but your A to dagger type but your. That's how they edited it. Ah! Yeah. Because then it's not inferring. It's like less of a. I don't know. It's just not. It's sort of removing the trans misogynist response that Batgirl has. So, we're bringing this in. Um, so, this is just the. Instance of transmisogyny in comics that came to mind that sort of um, used this trans killer trope from this other article written by scholars. So this is what I chose to bring in. Right. But I know that there is transmisogyny and poor representation in comics in a lot of, in many instances. Yeah.
1: This particular incident sparked. A conversation in the, the larger mainstream comics culture about how writers handled not trans women characters, but that sort of, um, trans misogynistic reveal trope, mm. um, but has ultimately done little to improve the way trans women are depicted both in the mainstream and in the indie scene.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, to go back to quote The Look Interrupted by Gruthis, um sort of part of the concluding scene is when movies, and in this case comics, look at trans women's bodies, they are looking for and finding signifiers of otherness. The cinema exposes trans women's bodies in order to stake out the limits of what bodies and genders are considered worthy and acceptable. In interrupting the spectator's look, the cinema is... Concretizing and documenting broader social phenomenon, how we look at and perceive visual difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that actually also echoes. There's a there's an there's a couple articles, but this one specifically, I wanted to quote from the Transgender Studies Reader, which is edited by uh, Suzanne Striker and Stephen Whittle. This was published in 2006, and um, as the title implies, it's a collection of academic writings uh, from primarily trans writers about trans about uh, trans issues, kind of spanning the last uh, like 30 or so years. And this particular essay I'm reading from is uh, "What Does It Cost to Tell the Truth?" Uh, by Ricky Ann Wilchins. For those who don't know, uh, Riki Ann Wilchins, she's a she's an activist um, who founded both uh, the Transsexual Menace, which was the first large direct action group for transgender rights, and she also uh, founded Gender PAC in 1995. And gender Gender PAC was a uh, an organization that also focused on gender rights issues. So she's been around for a long time, working towards trans rights. And sh- this essay is a transgender-specific response to Foucault's uh, necessity of making oneself an object of possible knowledge. So she writes, the body, said Simone de Bouvier, is a situation. In order to grasp our bodies, to think of them as well as to understand the cultural gaze that fixes upon them, we must construct what our bodies can be said to mean and look like. We rely upon other members of our speech community to do this, since it is in the meanings reflected back at us through culture that we find truth. Almost everything about bodies is discovered through comparison from the collection of meanings stored in a common language. Pretty, fat, plain, masculine, short, light-skinned, wrinkled, feminine, broad, sleek, ugly, athletic, deformed, slim, rotund, buxom, old, delicate. The litany traps and enfolds each body. Um... So, which, this ties into a lot of what we've been talking about about gays in general, but, like, these meanings are created through how we police each other mm. with our gaze and how we depict on, how we, like, how people are depicted on the screen.
0: Cool. Um, so I just found another quote <laughs> I meant to say earlier, but, um, yeah. so this is from an article written by Meredith Tulason from BuzzFeed News. It's titled 25 Years of Transphobia in Comedy. This quote is, One of the major indicators of trans women's villainy in these movies is that they did not disclose their trans status. Mm -hmm. The fact they're killers, blackmailers, or terrorists is intertwined with them, quote-unquote, hiding their male past though the humiliating revelation that they're trans is typically treated as more shocking and important than the crimes they've committed. The exposure of these women becomes synonymous with quote-unquote catching them. There's no meaningful difference made between finding out a woman's trans and discovering that she's a criminal.
1: That actually, I want to flip back to this, uh, because of the way she opens it, I think, fits in with that idea of um, what, the, what that trope pushes, which is deceit, right? Mm-hmm. So Wilkins says, uh, Foucault asked about the necessity of making oneself an object of possible knowledge to be learned and memorized. For genderqueers, that necessity, that necessity is survival. The purpose of a gender regime is to regulate these meanings and punish those who transgress them. In order to survive, to avoid the bashings, the job discrimination, and the street corner humiliations, my friend will be forced to place herself as a site of truth to be mastered that knowledge will come from others. She must know how others see her so that she can know how to see herself. Otherwise, she enters society at her peril. So this idea that the ultimate deception, like in these movies with this trope, what they're comparing this quote-unquote deception of like- And and same with the Batgirl. Is hiding their trans status is the same as being a killer or a villain. But at the same time, in order to survive in society, you have- to simultaneously let yourself be known and also, like, present this perfect facade of passing. Mm. So it's, like, so it, like, it ties, in, that, like,
0: it. It's reinforced sort of the, the gaze it. and the, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to tie back to that. Um, the only other thing I have that I want to talk about in the interest of, because what I've been trying to do is present different interpretations and analyses of gaze that allow for that sort of uh resistance that hooks talks about but i want to talk about um this this essay also from the um, transgender studies readers called from the medical gaze to sublime mutations the ethics of reviewing non-normative body images uh, by t benjamin singer this is not about film so much as it is about photography which I also talked about last time in regards to Kaja Silverman and how uh, photography is privileged as a Mm truth-telling device. So what uh, Singer is doing is developing or presenting the idea of a medical gaze, which is to say um, that medicine and criminology have colluded in a common aesthetic impulse to locate the site of deviance on the bodies of a wide array of social outcasts. And the medical gaze is referring to the way medical textbooks have historically used pictures of, uh, quote unquote, like gender deviant people, people with, uh, non-normative bodies, including people who are disabled and Mm -hmm. have visible disabilities, not just gender variant and intersex people. And the way these are presented, they frequently are like head on full body against something that is reminiscent of a headshot type grid, and their eyes are blacked out, or their face is blacked out. Okay. And this is done to preserve the privacy, obviously, of the subjects, but also creates a dehumanization. Mm. Because we are unable to relate to them. So their bodies just become these objects for us to gaze at. So he is comparing this to photography, self portrait photography done by trans photographers. And he specifically is referring to a, a book of photography called Sublime Mutations by um, Della Grace Volcano, who is a trans man. And he argues that the sublime mutations are the um, way that these photographers gaze back at the viewers. So, for instance, um, the self-portraits will come with captions that draw attention to the way they're being treated in the in the broader society Or, um, for instance, there was a a self-portrait of a woman without arms, um, where the caption is, why are you always staring at my short arms? And the photograph is posed in such a way that she's, like, looking directly at the viewer, so in that way she is able to challenge the gaze, like, what would be a medical gaze on her.
0: When you say medical gaze, what's the definition of that?
1: He's speaking specifically about, like, textbooks and things. So this is, like, specifically the way we photograph bodies that are, quote-unquote, outside the norm to present to people entering the medical profession. Okay, yeah. cool. So it's, like, that specific um, instance. But the argument he's making here is that that's damaging because it creates uh, dehumanization in these patients. Right. That when doctors are being trained, they don't see these bodies as, quote-unquote, normal. So when they go to treat people like that, they're going to have a skewed relationship with them. Okay, cool. Um, but his argument is for a sublime... Uh, Sublime Gaze. Um, So he writes, um, The Sublime challenges the act of judgment itself by suggesting the possibility of limitlessness. The Sublime mixes pleasure and pain, joy and terror, and confronts us with the threat of the absolute other, the limitations of our language, and our capacity to think and judge the fact of our own mortality. In Burke and Kant's category of the Sublime, reason is forced to confront its incapacity to deal rationally with the infinite. So he is suggesting that through these, like this self portraiture by trans people and like portraiture of trans people and um, disabled people where they are meeting, you know, where they are setting the terms of the images that are being made of them. Mm. Essentially we can create this sublime gaze, which challenges our understanding of what a normative body is image. So that's just like a strategy for mm-hmm. challenging gaze.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I mentioned this before, and I can't think of a neat transition, um, but I did want to look at, I mean, at least try to start to look at academic articles about boys love manga. Mm-hmm. And part of it is what's interesting about it is that when you talk to comics people, it's sort of the most basic argument that female gays exists. Mm-hmm. Right. So for Mulvey, just to go back to the 2007 interview with her, yes. Um, the interviewer says, this is one of the things that seems to emerge from that particular essay, that the male gaze is also the female gaze, namely that women look at themselves through the male gaze. Yes, that, that is absolutely crucial point. That's Mulvey again. So the interviewer again. So you can't escape the male gaze as it is the gaze. There is no other position from which to look at those films. Yes. This is a very strong political statement, which has been both applauded and contested. And Mulvey says that it is written as a manifesto. So I had no interest in modifying the argument, and it had to be rigorous to attack, as it were, the inescapability of the male gaze. Yeah. So
1: I like that also, because that does provide a uh, context for, because a lot of criticism of the male ga- of this idea of the male gaze has come from the fact that it's so rigid, but here she's explaining why she made it so rigid.
0: Yeah. It was a purposeful point. Yeah. It was 1975, feminism <laughs> was, here, it was new, not new. <laughs> <laughs> new, women's lib was new. Yeah. And so she was trying to be strong yes. um, in her argument. And we talked about lesbian gaze and, like, interpretive strategies to use a lesbian gaze in an active participant role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to, start to look at the female gaze in Boys Love Manga. And if you don't know what Boys Love Manga is, there's, like, some history to it. So it's, like, sort of a derivative of shoujo manga. It's also from the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Although a Japanese genre of male homoerotic comics created primarily by women for women hardly sounds like a viable subject for serious academic research, Boys Love manga, or BL, has proven to, be- to have s- broad implications on the study of transnational gender politics and performativity, feminist and queer readings, and fan community building, among other subjects. Right. Um, focuses on BL as it has been received and transformed by non-Japanese cultures and shows how it can be used to open up sexually ambivalent spaces, de-eroticize female subjectivity, and contribute to women's psychosexual self-therapy and permit expression of cultural, racial, and sexual hybridity. You know, all this, this is quoting from, um, from just sort of the beginning of the editorial, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have the author in front of me. When I found what I was trying to look the up, uh, writings about Boys Love Manga, is I just didn't find what I was looking for. Yeah. I just didn't find it. So those quotes are from Editorial Boys Love Manga Special Section, written by Drew, Peg uh, Kazumi, Nagaike, and Mark McCary. Um... I want to move on to an article from the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. That was an introduction to this journal issue. Right. Um, So one of the pieces is titled Drawing from the Body, The Self, The Gaze, and The Other in Boys Love Manga Mm -hmm. by Uli Mayer. And this is all from 2013. Okay. Well, that's when it's published online. I don't know if the actual article was written in 2013, but that's when it was published online. Yeah. Um, So it's the idea of, is the gaze essentially male and or dehumanizing? Are women even capable of an equally objectifying gaze? Today's plethora of female-produced visual erotica, such as boys love manga or slash art, seems to render these earlier discussions obsolete. But there is still a noted lack of female gaze at male erotic objects in high art or mainstream media. See, they make these broad statements. And I just don't know if it's, yeah, if it's what I I think is true.
1: I mean, I well, I guess because it it operates from the assumption that there is absolutely a female gaze, and it's, it's it like opens up on the premise that there must be a female gaze because B L exists, except that that's not
0: necessarily. In or, see, we what we've established previously is that the gaze is a power relationship, right? The gaze is someone in power viewing someone lower on the hierarchy of power.
1: Yeah, I think it's a complicated. It's complicated in this. I also well, I also personally always sort of uh, bristle at the the notion that all of the women that read BL are straight.
0: Yes, no. Like, this whole article is written. It actually, this whole article is written as if it is straight. It, as it is, as if it is only for the straight female gaze, the yeah. only for in a straight female, yeah, yeah, audience. And I think I was picking this up because I was like, let's talk about women's sexuality. Let's talk about queer sexuality. Yeah. Let's talk about. They do mention how sort of the way that boys' love is drawn, that it can sort of. Uh, bring in uh, transgender conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just none of these articles (laughs) was, like, what I was going for, what I was interested in.
1: I also kind of wonder at the um, uh, grouping of Slash, which is a, like, Western fandom thing with BL, which is a Japanese manga genre,
0: yeah, and so they are also talking about doujinshi, which is, which is a- fan comics. Right, which isn't original storytelling, which is what BL is.
1: Right. Yeah, they're like they're like What grouping- they're
0: grouping is in North America. They are grouping what they believe is the female gaze mm-hmm. upon gay male erotica. Right. So they're grouping all that together. Right. And you're saying that it doesn't make sense to group those things together.
1: Not the way, I I guess just based on my understanding as a person who grew up in fandom, you know what I mean? There's like slightly nuanced differences.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting. So like when they talk about Slash, they talk about homosociality, which makes me think about, so like Slash, Slash is like Fan fiction written about two male characters from another title, in which they are usually men who are friends or they have some sort of relationship. Yeah. Um. So I thought that had like an interesting crossover with the ch- with the lesbian interpretive strategies. Yeah, that's And then There's like lesbians viewing cinema with female friendships, such as films like uh, *Fried Green Tomatoes* right. or *The Color Purple* um can read in, into those female friendships and that intimacy a sexual relationship. Yeah. And it felt like that is the same thing that they're talking about when they talk about slash fan fiction and with with um uh television shows like Sherlock mm-hmm. in which there are two main male characters who have an intimacy. Yeah. But it just didn't feel like what I was reading like, it talked about voyeurism, and it talked about, it treated BL as if it was just pornography, and it was sort of relating, like, like the difference between female-made por- pornography versus male-made pornography, and it just didn't feel like any of it was hitting true to, I mean, I haven't said this, but I'm, like, a huge fan of boys' love manga. Yeah. Like, I've read a lot of it. yeah, And it's like, to 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 distill it as if it is only pornography is like.
1: Well, that's the interesting thing is that I I mean I I like BL, but I certainly haven't read as much like invested as much time into it. But I gr- I grew up reading slash fan fiction. So slash like the thing about slash is that um... again that's not all pornography. Like those are not synonymous terms. There are a lot of there's a lot of slash fiction that's just stories stories Yes. romance stories exactly yeah it's close it's closer to like. Romance novels, then, uh, then. Yeah,
0: so I think what I'm dan- what I'm saying is that I just I was trying super hard because it is it is a conversation to be had mm-hmm. about the way that gay male relationships can get fetishized. Oh yeah, yeah. In comics, um, it's a conversation that we need to be having a little bit more. And so I was looking for papers about that, and that is just not what the papers were about. Right. Just couldn't find <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I read, I read, I obviously I didn't read everything because I that's, I have a job. Um
1: back the curtain a little bit. Did what
0: I could, and but I just I th- I thought basically I felt like if we were going to talk about the gays in a second episode, it felt like we needed to address a prevailing belief. That gay manga is made for the female gaze, Right. And what is the female gaze? How is it defined? And I just don't think I have found a theory that works.
1: Yeah, without flattening it or overlooking gay manga that's written for gay men or, like...
0: Ignoring th- Mulvey's entire thing, which is yeah. that women are treated like they're objects in yeah. popular media...
1: Yeah, there's. I don't think it. I don't think it's quite possible to draw a direct. I mean, without taking in, for example, like the way an imperialistic gaze might impact the way white women look at Japanese. Yeah. Media. That's a different, but that's like a different conversation than what this paper's trying to have.
0: Yeah. So. So. so this is three different papers that you're looking at right now, E. Well. That I I lumped together because just, just none be, of them are just they
1: all. Okay, well, you know what I mean, that, that, that journal that the articles yeah. were addressing.
0: I mean, there is a few interesting points. Um, one of the articles just talks about, and these all these articles, we'll um, will cite them in our show notes so you can find them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them talks about Scott McCloud's alternative basic model of the gays in comics. Um, so this model, which is seen as the artist's point of view, rather than the reader's, is that the artist uh, sort of draws a male character this is a heterosexual the male character as if they are inside the character and therefore the male character is goofy and that the female love interest is viewed from the outside and therefore they are more humanoid basically which is sort of a it's sort of a thing that happens a lot in mickey mouse yeah if comics, you comics bone it's a, it's a pretty common thing yeah, if you if you actually um last week
1: the Trina Robbins article I cited, she breaks that down throughout, like, comics history pretty well.
0: Yeah, and so, uh, here's a nice quote from this article. Um, The body and the gaze, be it the body and gaze of the characters, the audience, or the artist, are of high importance in all erotic visual media, including boys' love. But in contrast to many other visual media, comics and cartoons do not just show the human body as it appears, but as it is experienced or fantasized. The body's forms and proportions, the drawing styles and the line work become carriers of meaning. Which I think is a good conclusion for our
1: yeah. conversations
0: about the gaze and reference to the comics, and just it's not just like film or photography, but there's also a drawing style that needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah. Yes, that's a very important. Thing.
0: Do you have any conclusionary statements?
1: I guess I just want to reiterate that um, my goal here, I know I, I personally didn't focus on like comics-driven writing, or like comic media, necessarily. Um, my goal here was to sort of highlight ways in which marginalized communities have constructed uh resistance to the gays or the coping strategies or like strategic viewing to kind of like highlight the very deep complexities um that we all have with ourselves and media and each other and i especially wanted to focus on with regards to that uh like black black women and trans women because th- those like that those intersections of marginality are like uh like the most fraught um, mm-hmm. so it was really important to me to highlight that in the ways, uh, in which, uh, critiques have been offered and strategies have been implemented with regards to male gaze. So I hope that this can be sort of a starting point to, uh, like,
0: do further
1: research, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hope, um, I'm, it feels like academia mm-hmm. is slow compared to, the speed in which comics are created and talked about.
1: Yes, yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to find academics dealing with other forms of mass media, particularly cinema, or mm-hmm. um, but even cinema studies has it just exploded in the last twenty years. Mm. Like that's still a comparatively modern development. <laughs> uh-huh. So I guess the hope is that comic scholarship will eventually sort of follow suit.
0: Yeah. So our next segment would usually be Letters to the Editor, but it feels this enti- like this entire episode was Letters to the Editor, which is usually our segment in which we talk about previous topics and the ways in which we want to uh, complicate them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess I will say there was, um, I didn't have an opportunity to spend enough time with it to include it, but uh, I I would definitely recommend looking into um, No Tea, No Shade uh Black Queer Studies. It's another anthology like uh, Transgender Studies Reader that's specifically from uh, black queer writers about a bunch of different topics.
0: Cool. Yeah. Is it free online?
1: No. (laughs) It's not, but I think it's worth supporting.
0: Cool. Cool. Um, I want to say thanks to Downtown Boys for the use of their song Wave of History off their album Full Communism. You can email us at
1: Drawing a dialogue at
0: gmail.com. Awesome. And you can uh, check out comicarted.com, which is where this podcast is hosted. And it also includes my other educational work. Um, You can follow me at Kathy G. John.
1: You can follow me at ehecha, which is E-H-E-T-J-A.
0: So, E, what are you reading?
1: So, I guess because I've been spending so much time with the, uh, with trans scholarship lately. Anyway, I actually have been reading, uh, I've been reading Julia Serrano's, uh, The Whipping Girl. Awesome. Yeah. What's it about? That is her book about, um, well, it's the book where she coins the term transmisogyny, and it's about her experiences as, a a transgender woman, and, uh, it's, it's essays about how, Trans, transgender women are marginalized, essentially. that's a, It's an inelegant summary, but it's an important piece of transgender scholarship. Yeah, it so. is, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: What are you reading, Kathy?
0: Um, So I just read uh, Kiss Me at the Stroke of Midnight. It's a manga by Rin Mikimoto. It's about a normal teenage high school girl and she starts to date a celebrity boy. Oh, um, really and <laughs> So it's sort of like a fantasy fairy tale. Um, but what I like about it is that um, she talks about... Uh, the manga talks about characters pooping a lot. <laughs> Which I feel like is not something you would expect from a shoujo romance comic. So I <laughs> like that there's a scatological humor aspect to it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it looks really cool. Yeah.
0: So, this was Drawing a Dialogue. Uh, thank you for listening. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. Farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Yeah.